It's 45 to 1900. The clock says. Rashidun robot removed by angry mob. UFA is flattened. Song snakes prevail. And Jane Austen accidentally invents time machine with word processor. Plus, coming up, our annual report on Tibet's rising death rate due to sheep farts. Those are the headlines. This is the news. News bang, poking holes in the balloon of lies. A dish that you see, um, such as 661. 661 AD, and it's another one bites the sand as Ali, fourth Islamic caliph and first Shia imam, is himself made Walmart kebab. The former strongman of the Rashidun Caliphate, a powerful force in West Asia and Northeast Africa, or as we know it today, walk and go, was accosted by an unknown assailant whilst praying at his local mosque. Eyewitnesses report that a hooded figure entered the place of worship, shouting, Allahu Akbar Muda! before plunging a scimitar into the unsuspecting ruler's backside. Pandemonium ensued as worshippers dived for their prayer mats. The assailant remains at large, but authorities have released a description. Six foot two inches tall with bushy facial hair, carrying a curved sword and wearing sandals made from the finest goat leather money can steal. A reward of 10,000 dinars has been offered for information leading to his capture. Dead, or preferably, decapitated. 1142. In a sensational twist of dynastic treachery, it emerged today that Uefe, the very man who saved the Song dynasty from their sworn enemies, the Jin or Jurchen hordes, was ruthlessly executed on orders of his own emperor. The year is 1142 and General Yui's death has sent shockwaves through history itself. His crime? Single-handedly keeping alive hopes of a free southern China by pushing back invaders from the north for over two decades. His reward? A one-way ticket to oblivion courtesy of some ungrateful so-and-so in silk pyjamas. It's like George Washington being hanged for having too many teeth, said one appalled bystander. Yue had famously declared he would never rest until every invader had left our shores, which now seems prophetic as his ghost reportedly haunts Nanjing to this day, spooking tourists and umbrella sellers alike. Meanwhile, historians point out that without him, there'd be no Sichuan chicken or chopsticks, testament to his enduring legacy. <coughs> 1813. On this day in 1813, the world of literature was rocked to its very foundations with the publication of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. The novel, a scathing indictment of Britain's landed gentry, shone a light on the precarious position of women in late 18th century society a society where one must only trip over their petticoat to find themselves married off to some crusty old duke or another. The story follows Elizabeth Bennet, a feisty heroine who refuses to settle for just any old wealthy man thrown her way. Her headstrong nature and quick wit endear her to millions of spinster aunts throughout history. The book also introduces us to Mr Darcy, brooding, moody and richer than Croesus, who had women all over Britain experiencing strange sensations beneath their corsets. As our period correspondent Regency reporter explains, this is no frothy romance. Austin skewers the upper classes with rapier-like wit. One socialite we spoke to agreed. I nearly spilled my Ovaltine. Pride and prejudice has stood the test of time like Kira Knightley's acting career, still going strong despite everyone saying it should have ended years ago.
News bang. A stirring cocktail of facts shaken not stirred. Presenting your weather update, Shakanaka Giles. Bright and early tomorrow, the skies will be as clear as a clergyman's conscience. The sun will rise, warming the land like a well-stoked hearth. It's as if Mother Nature herself has flipped the switch on a cosmic kettle. As we move through the day, expect a few scattered clouds like sheep in the sky. There'll be no cause for concern, just a gentle reminder that even on the brightest days, there's still room for a bit of whimsy early now. For those of you in the northeast, prepare for a wee sprinkle around midday. Nothing too dramatic, just enough to give your umbrellas a little workout. It's as if the heavens are giving you a gentle pat on the back, saying, keep up the good work. And that's all the weather. Stay warm, stay dry, and remember to enjoy the beauty of the world around you. After all, it's not every day you get to share a planet with such an unpredictable meteorologist. Nineteen sixty-four. In a chilling reminder of the tenuous Cold War era, an unarmed U.S. Air Force T-39 Sabre liner was tragically downed over Erfurt, East Germany, in nineteen sixty-four. The culprit a Soviet MiG-19 fighter aircraft. This mid-sized business jet, developed by North American Aviation, met its untimely end in the skis above Erfurt, capital of the now-defunct East Germany. The MiG-19R, a supersonic aircraft and the world's first mass-produced of its kind, left no survivors among the three aboard the Sabra liner. As we remember this harrowing event, we turn to our correspondent, Brian Bastable, for further insight. I'm in the heart of the maelstrom, where moments ago, history was being written in a spray of hot blood. For it's now that we see once more a clash of titans as two giant war machines come together in battle for supremacy. This is no time for political maneuvering or cowering under desks and shaking with fear. No, this is the real deal, life or death. It's not every day you see an unarmed U.S. Air Force T-39 Sabreliner mid-size business jet take on a Soviet MiG-19 fighter aircraft in what can only be described as some kind of insane combat ritual to appease their dark masters above. But here we are. The T-39 Sapraliner was developed by North American Aviation and used by the USAF, USN and USMC, all top-notch military forces if ever there were any. And now it faces off against its nemesis, the MiG-19, which proudly holds the title of being the world's first mass-produced supersonic aircraft. But let us not forget where this epic struggle unfolds. Erfurt, capital city of Thuringia, Germany, East Germany no less, a country steeped in mystery and intrigue since 1949 until its eventual demise in 1990, a time when men were men and women were also men, 
but probably called something else entirely different back then. Who knows? Who cares? Not me, not now, not ever. What matters is that right here, right now, these two metal beasts are locked in mortal combat high above our heads like angry gods, hurling thunderbolts at each other while down below mere mortals cower beneath their mighty fists, or wings, or whatever they have instead of fists because they're planes after all. Never mind all that nonsense though, what truly counts is that I am Brian Bastable reporting live from this most thrilling spectacle brought to you exclusively by Newsbang. Bobintis de Tilm, a slate ten lesquisards and a detest daughter shelves, ten sixty nine. In a dramatic turn of events that could make even the most seasoned historians quiver, Robert de Commons, Earl of Northumbria, met his untimely end in Durham. The year was 1069, and the region of Northumbria had already seen its fair share of Viking invasions and a division into smaller baronies following the Norman conquest. The consequences. A power vacuum that would usher in William the Conqueror's brutal campaign to conquer northern England. Known as the harrying of the north, these military operations aimed to subjugate the region and suppress rebellions. And now to delve deeper into this historical whirlwind, we turn to our correspondent Ken Shit. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Ken Shit, your one-man tornado of news. And tonight we're journeying back to a time when the Normans were riding roughshod over the poor sods in northern England. It's 1069, and Robert de Commines, Earl of Northumbria, has just been whacked in Durham. Now listen up, you bloody Saxons. William the Conqueror is coming for you with his band of merry men, uh, Norman invaders. He wants to crush your spirits and make you bow down to his iron fist. This is the harrying of the North, a brutal campaign that will leave scars on this land for generations to come. The Vikings had their fun here before, but nothing compares to the wrath of William the bloody bastard. He'll have no mercy on those who resist him. They'll be hanged, drawn and quartered like common criminals. And if that doesn't work, he'll burn their villages to the ground and salt the earth so nothing will grow again. This is not just about power anymore, it's about wiping out an entire culture and replacing it with something new, something Norman. So brace yourselves, folks. History is about to be rewritten in blood and fire. Ken Shit signing off from this godforsaken era. 1933. In a momentous move that would reverberate through the annals of history, Chowdhury Rahmat Ali, a Pakistani nationalist, introduced the concept of a separate Muslim state in northwestern India. In 1933, he christened this vision, Pakistan, marking the inception of the Pakistan movement. The British Raj, an era spanning from 1858 to 1947, encompassed both British India's directly administered regions and princely states under British influence. As we delve deeper into this transformative period, Let's welcome Hardiman Pesto to elucidate further on the implications of this groundbreaking proposition. I'm here in New Delhi, where rising tensions threaten the stability of British rule. Calls for independence are growing louder, and one man's pamphlet may prove the spark that lights the fire. I have with me Lord Mountbatten, the last Viceroy of India. Mr. Mountbatten, what can you tell us about this Chudri Ramat Ali and his so-called Pakistan? Well, he's a chap with some radical ideas, no doubt wants to divide India between Hindus and Muslims. Not practical, if you ask me. We can't have people running around drawing lines on the map willy-nilly. 
but his pamphlet is gaining traction, is it not? What if he inspires violence between Hindus and Muslims? Could this threaten British control? Oh, poppycock, old boy. We've dealt with rabble-rousers before. Throw the blighter in jail for a tick, he'll soon pipe down. Most of these types haven't got the gumption for the long haul. Sources say mass protests are already being planned in response to Ali's arrest. This could be the worst unrest since the massacres of 1919. Yes, well, we shall see about that. I've given the provincial governors a firm hand. Anyone steps out of line, it's the truncheon for them. We'll have none of this civil disobedience claptrap. Not on my watch. But if passions begin to escalate, could this pamphlet be the first domino to fall, leading to the eventual collapse of the Raj? Hardly. We've got 300,000 troops here, old boy. If they want a scrap, we'll give them one by Joe. British rule has seen India enter the 20th century. We've built roads, railways, irrigation. They'd be lost without us. This is all a storm in a teacup, nothing more. Yet storms can sometimes become typhoons, Lord Mountbatten. If violence spreads, how will you maintain control? India is a powder keg. Could one man's words spark a wildfire? Wildfires be damned. We'll extinguish any outbreaks quickly enough. The loss of India is unthinkable. Now, if you'll excuse me, my whiskey awaits. Raj forever. What? News Bang, the world's first and only truthometer. Here with a special report on the Yulan Arena, later known as the Washington Coliseum, and its rich history is our very own Ryder Boff. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, the year is 1941, and what a year it was. The Uline Arena, later to be known as the Washington Coliseum, stood proud in Washington, D.C., like a great big concrete pudding ready to be filled with the cream of entertainment. It hosted events that would make your eyes water and your heart sing, from President Eisenhower's inaugural ball where he danced like a man who'd just found out his gout was in remission, to the Beatles' first concert on American soil. Oh yes, those mop-topped Liverpudlian lads strumming their way into history. The arena itself could squeeze over 8,000 souls into its bosom. More if you greased them up and pushed hard enough. And let's not forget the ice capades, sequins and spandex gliding across ice with more grace than a gazelle on roller skates. But alas, by the 1980s it had declined in popularity faster than my second marriage. I remember attending one of those shows. I ended up sitting next to an old chap who claimed he invented Velcro but couldn't stick around because he was allergic to cold ankles. And now there are whispers of reviving this icy extravaganza. One can only hope they bring back those feathered costumes that made you feel like you were watching a peacock parade on ice. And speaking of parades, let's not forget that arena capacity. Over 8,000 people. That's enough bodies to fill every bathtub in Buckinghamshire, and believe me, I've tried. The Uline Arena was more than just bricks and mortar. It was where memories were made and occasionally lost after one too many sherries at the concession stand. But enough reminiscing about days gone by when men were men and women were, well, quite frankly, astonished. Back here in 2024, we're still making history every day. Sometimes twice before breakfast if there's an east wind blowing and my bunions aren't playing up. So there we have it. The Uline Arena. Eisenhower waltzing away without care for his presidential bunions. The Beatles shaking their hairdos loose and ice skaters pirouetting into obscurity. What a time to be alive, or so I've been told by people who were actually there. I've been Ryder Boff, bringing you yesterday's news today.
Penelope Windchime, now with a retrospective on the capricious antics of Tropical Storm Des Moines in 1984, which left a trail of wet footprints in southern Mozambique and eastern South Africa. Ah, the whispers of history rustle through the leaves of time, and today they murmur to us about a tempest from 1984. Tropical Storm Des Moines, the capricious dance of nature's fury, twirled its way into southern Mozambique with the grace of a ballet dancer having a tantrum. The skies wept as if they'd watched the saddest film ever made, flooding lands with tears that could fill an ocean or at least a very large swimming pool. Swaziland was drenched in record rainfall, as if Mother Earth decided to wash her hair right above it. And when she was done, she wrung out her locks, and 242 souls were swept away in her aqueous embrace. The damage? A peculiarly precise $0.25 million, enough to make you wonder if Mother Nature had opened her own watery cash register. Domoina then pranced into eastern South Africa like an uninvited guest who not only crashes your party but also floods your basement before dissipating into the annals of meteorological mischief. And so we remember Domoina, not just for its havoc, but as a reminder that sometimes nature throws a party and everyone's invited, whether we like it or not. Ertin Ernestine, 1986. In a tragedy that has gripped the heartstrings of the world, the year 1986 bore witness to a harrowing spectacle in the skies. The Space Shuttle Challenger, a beacon of human ambition, disintegrated merely 73 seconds into its flight, taking with it the dreams and lives of seven valiant souls. Challenger's 10th mission, marked as STS-51L, turned from a routine space voyage into a catastrophic event, marking the first time American space exploration faced such a mortal blow during a mission. Originally a test entity, Challenger was thrust into the operational spotlight, its legacy forever altered that fateful January day. The repercussions of this disaster reverberate still, a solemn reminder of the perilous journey to the stars. For a sensitive look back at this tragedy, we now turn to Melody Wintergreen. Here we are, standing on the precipice of history, as the Space Shuttle Challenger bravely prepares to defy the very bounds of our terrestrial existence. But little do we know that in just a few moments, this triumph of human ingenuity will become a chilling symbol of our hubris. The air is thick with anticipation as the countdown ticks away, each second carrying the weight of a thousand hopes and dreams. The Challenger, a gleaming titan of technology, sits proudly on the launch pad, a testament to mankind's insatiable thirst for discovery. The crew, a diverse and intrepid group of astronauts, are the embodiment of the American spirit. Commander Francis Dick Scobie, a veteran of the space program, leads the team with quiet determination. Pilot Michael J. Smith, a former Navy test pilot, brings his steady hand and unwavering focus to the mission. But the true star of this mission is Krista McAuliffe, a high school teacher from New Hampshire. As the first civilian to fly into space, she has captured the hearts and minds of the nation, serving as a beacon of inspiration for generations to come. The countdown reaches zero and the engines roar to life, 
a deafening cacophony that shakes the very foundations of the Earth. The Challenger begins its slow ascent, a phoenix rising from the ashes of our collective imagination. But then, in an instant, the unthinkable happens. A bright flash, followed by a plume of smoke, and the Challenger is no more. The crowd, once jubilant, now stands in stunned silence, as the reality of the tragedy begins to sink in. In the aftermath of the disaster, investigators would discover that a simple O-ring failure was to blame. A seemingly insignificant component, overlooked in the rush to meet an ambitious launch schedule, would ultimately prove to be the Challenger's undoing. As the nation mourns the loss of these brave astronauts, we are reminded of the fragile nature of our existence. The Challenger disaster serves as a sobering reminder that, while we may reach for the stars, we are still bound by the laws of the universe. And so, we stand here today on the hallowed grounds of the Kennedy Space Center to pay tribute to the crew of the Challenger. Their legacy will live on, not only in the annals of space history, but in the hearts and minds of all who dare to dream. News bang, poking holes in the balloon of BS. And in the world of business, a Danish toy company, Lego, has filed a patent for their iconic interlocking plastic bricks. The Lego Group, established in 1932, has expanded its operations to include amusement parks and retail stores. The versatile plastic bricks can be assembled in countless ways to create a myriad of objects. To shed more light on this development, we turn to our resident business correspondent, Perkin Stornaway. The Lego Group, known for its interlocking plastic bricks, is having a rather upbeat day in the market. Fastnet, fair. In 1958, the company patented its design, cementing its position in the toy market. Cromarty occasionally rough. Amusement parks have been reported up 2.4 in the West. But in the heart of the market, the situation is looking rather bleak. Dogger, slight or moderate, an upstart competitor known as Blockstack is reportedly encroaching on the market. Shannon, fair. Blockstack is known for its stackable blocks, often in primary colours. Fastnet, good, occasionally poor. But in a rather unexpected twist, Blockstack is reportedly having some issues with its product. Hebrides, West, backing Southwest, four or five. An inordinate number of its blocks have been reported to have missing or incomplete pieces. Trafalgar, West, becoming cyclonic, 5 to 7. In fact, some have reported having to send the product back for replacements. The situation in the market is looking rather mixed. Biscay, slight, occasionally rough. While the Lego group is having a rather upbeat day, Blockstack is having some rather disappointing results. Cromarty, east or northeast, 3 or 4. In fact, Blockstack is having to make some rather drastic cuts in its product line. But in the end, the true winners in this situation seem to be the parents. Thames, fair, occasionally moderate. They're having to buy more Lego sets to make up for the missing Blockstack pieces. In conclusion, Fastnet, fair, occasionally poor. While Blockstack is having some rather disappointing results, 
the Lego Group seems to be having a rather upbeat day in the market. That's the business. <coughs> 1813. And in a blast from the past, we're whisked back to 1813 when Jane Austen penned her scathing critique of the British-landed gentry in her novel, Pride and Prejudice. The book, a literary time capsule, unveils the stark realities faced by women of the era who relied on marriage for social standing and economic security. Following the character development of Elizabeth Bennet, Austen underscores the importance of eschewing hasty judgments, a timeless tale that continues to resonate even today. Now let's hear more about this classic work from our reporter Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Whoa! My dashing darlings of the digital age, it's your ever-sparkling Smithsonian Moss beaming through your screens with a throwback that's gonna knock your petticoats off. Let's time travel back to 1813 when the OG queen of sass and class, Jane Austen, dropped the mic with her banging novel, Pride and Prejudice. Now, hold on to your bonnets, cause this ain't your average snooze fest from English lit class. Oh no, honey, Jane was serving up the tea on the British landed gentry with a side of shade. Picture it, a world where your entire life's worth was measured by how well you could snag a hubby. Talk about pressure. Enter our homegirl, Elizabeth Bennet, a fierce lady who's not about to let society's whack standards dictate her life. She's out here dodging bullets like Neo in The Matrix, except the bullets are pompous suitors and her Neo is all about that sharp wit and moral compass. And let's chat about Mr. Darcy, shall we? The man's a walking contradiction, a snob with a heart of gold, a man who's as confusing as trying to use a quill in the 21st century. But Lizzie, she sees right through that frosty exterior and teaches us all a thing or two about not jumping to conclusions. Because let's face it, we've all been guilty of swiping left a little too hastily, am I right? But the real kicker? Jane Austen was out here writing the 19th century version of a rom-com that still got us swooning over two centuries later. And all the while, she's throwing some serious shade at the ridiculousness of marrying for status instead of love. Like... Hello? Can we get some real talk? So, let's raise our imaginary teacups to Jane Austen, the original queen of the clapback, and to Pride and Prejudice, a book that's still slaying the literary scene 211 years later. And remember, next time you're about to judge a book, or a potential bay, by its cover, just ask yourself, what would Lizzie Bennet do? That's all the time I've got, my culture vultures. Keep it locked on Newsbang for all the juicy bits of history that your heart desires. Smithsonian Moss, out. Newsbang, taking the human out of human interest stories. Ambassadoren, this was 1568. A remarkable moment in the annals of religious history unfurls as the year 1568 bears witness to the Edict of Torda, a groundbreaking declaration of religious tolerance across the three nations of Transylvania. This unprecedented proclamation, a direct response to the Transylvanian peasant revolt, permits local communities to elect their spiritual leaders freely. In an era marked by religious strife and intolerance, this bold step not only soothes tensions, but also paves the way for future generations to embrace diversity and coexistence. 
The Edict of Torda stands as a testament to humanity's potential for growth and understanding amidst adversity. Now, joining me on the line is Pastor Kevin Monstrance to shed light on this extraordinary event. Good evening, ladies and gents. The producer just slipped me a note informing me that today marks the anniversary of the Edict of Torda. Now, I must confess, Transylvanian history was never my strong suit. I was always more focused on dodging my history master's cane. But in brief, this edict allowed for religious freedoms and tolerance in Transylvania back in 1568. Quite progressive for the time. It reminds me of a similar decree passed in my childhood parish of St Hilda's in Lower Bullock upon Shinbone. Our priest was the eccentric father Treacle Bumtreacle. Lovely man, but a bit too free with the communion wine, if you catch my drift. The parishioners loved it, but the local bishop, Bishop Pompous Windbag III, most certainly did not. <laughs> the bishop decreed that Father Treacle Bumtreacle must cease his undignified displays immediately. But the good father refused to change his ways. So what did the parishioners do? They passed their own edict declaring that Father Treacle Bum Treacle could continue his services exactly as he saw fit. Needless to say, old windbag didn't take kindly to this, but the parish held firm. <laughs> this went on for some time, sir, until one Sunday, mid-service, we heard an awful groaning sound coming from the back of the church. We turned to see Bishop Pompous Windbag swaying in the aisle before collapsing in a heap. Father Treacle Bumtreacle rushed over and declared the bishop had expired from an apoplectic fit brought on by years of pomposity. <laughs> well, after that, the new bishop was only too happy to make Father Treacle Bumtreacle's eccentric style official in the parish. All it took was one flatulent bishop to pop his garters for religious freedom to prevail. So you see, the Edict of Torda and my own parish edict have more in common than you'd think. When rigid authority meets unyielding tradition, let off a little hot air. Now that reminds me of an amusing story about a teetotal vicar and his tipsy sexton. But I'm afraid time grows short. Thank you again and God bless. <laughs> And time now for our final look at tomorrow's headlines. World War II, Poles wiped out by Soviet partisans, that's the Times. The Daily Telegraph opt for fleet's fight in Pacific punch-up. And finally, the Independent. Liliuokalani becomes Hawaiian Queen, see picture page 2. That's where there's a drawing of a pretty lady. Remember, you can catch the news bang hour every evening here on this frequency. There's no need to say goodbye. You'll never leave me, and I'll never leave you. So long as we're both willing to hang on to each other. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.